This is American History TV's Lectures in History podcast. This week, University of Tennessee College of Law professor Glenn Harlan Reynolds teaches a class about free speech and the legal cases that have impacted the court's interpretation of this part of the First Amendment. Hi, and welcome to a second episode of Cod Law 2020 Global Pandemic Edition. Here we are. Uh, the first class went pretty well, so uh, let's hope that this one does too. Uh, we are being recorded for C-SPAN, so for the folks out at C-SPAN, I am Professor Glenn Reynolds. I'm a law professor at the University of Tennessee. This is our standard four-hour introductory con law class uh, for 2020, uh, and we are talking today about free speech and related stuff, incitement, true threats, and we're going to get started on obscenity. Um, we're going to be a little less Socratic than usual today because the C-SPAN people asked me to be. And we're going to, here's the textbook we're using. It is Calvin Massey and Brandon Denning's Constitutional Law. It's a good case book. It's the first time I've used this one, actually. So we're still learning our way here a bit, too, but it's going just fine. So today we're talking about free speech. We've been talking about equal protection. We've been talking about uh, race discrimination, gender, and things like that. And, and now we're pivoting to a... a core part of the Bill of Rights, a different uh, section entirely, all about free speech. Now the framers, we know, valued free speech very highly. Uh, to the extent they talked about it, they saw it as mostly political, uh, more than artistic or expressive. Uh, and the interesting thing about the First Amendment is that courts did very little with it for the first century plus of its existence. Uh, almost all the case law comes from the 20th century or the 21st. Uh, and um, there are a couple of reasons for that. Uh, one is that uh, many of the matters that it touched on, uh, uh, the first thing it touches on, were really not federal issues for the most part. Uh, for example, uh, incitement was generally considered a local criminal matter. It was dealt with by state courts, and if there were constitutional restraints on it in those days before the uh, First Amendment was incorporated against the state through the 14th Amendment, the only limits on what a state could do to regulate incitement uh, came from their state constitution. So it just didn't become a federal issue. Uh, with regard to obscenity, well, the technology wasn't really there. There were books which were regarded as obscene uh, going back a long time, and, and for that matter, paintings, I suppose. Uh, but uh, the ability to mass produce sexual images, which is what seems to really set people off, uh, didn't really appear until the middle of the 19th century and didn't take off in a big way until, again, or going into the 20th century. And of course, you couldn't have obscene movies until movies were invented. Uh, so that had a lot to do with it. Uh, so one of the interesting things about this is that much of the settled law of the First Amendment uh, is younger than me. Uh, it's really from the second half and, and actually pretty far into the second half of the 20th century. Uh, and as a result, you know, we, we feel like it's old settled law, but it is by the standards of constitutional law, relatively new. Now, your textbook talks about free expression of ideas. And that's not a phrase that's found in the Constitution, but we sort of uh, derive it from the things the Constitution does protect. The First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. And it's worth noting, these are actually separate free speech rights. Each of these is its own clause. Uh, for example, we have freedom of speech, we have freedom of the press, we have right of assembly, and we have right of petition. And those are all, to some degree, analytically distinct, uh, enough so that when you're writing a brief or other document uh, addressed to a court, uh, you do want to sort of keep that in mind. 
Um, as a practical matter, we tend to lump them all together as uh, either free speech or free press, though we also derive, as we'll see later, uh, a, a right of association from assembly and petition and speech that is not contained in the text at all. So, oh, and one other side point, freedom of the press, which we'll get to later, I should just mention, Madison originally called it freedom of the use of the press, and it is indeed freedom to print things and publish things. It is not a freedom for what we now refer to institutionally as the press, the media. Uh, it's the same for everybody, media or not. Well, in free expression, there, there's a big category that is probably the single most important distinction we're going to deal with, and that is between content-neutral regulations of speech and content-based regulations of speech. Content-based regulations of speech are bad. They are presumed invalid and are subjected to strict scrutiny. They're upheld only in the uh, strictest of circumstances. Uh, a content-based example might be, for example, uh, no discussion of The Bachelor. I like to kind of go for that one, maybe. Uh, at any rate, picking a topic and placing it off limits. Uh, a subset of content-based speech is viewpoint discrimination or viewpoint-based regulation in which you're allowed to talk about something, but not from particular viewpoints. So you can talk about politics, but you can't talk about that from a communist viewpoint, for example, would be a case of viewpoint discrimination, which is a subset of content discrimination. Content-neutral regulation are not addressed to what the speech is about. Uh, so a content-neutral regulation might, for example, say you can't operate sound trucks in a residential neighborhood between 8 p.m. and 8 a.m. Uh, that's content neutral because they don't care what you're saying with the sound trucks, they just don't want you keeping people awake. Now, I mentioned the framers didn't talk about why we have free speech very much, but the courts do, and the courts have a number of different ideas which tend to come to the front in different ways, in different cases, and sometimes even to be a, a bit contradictory uh, when they're thinking about what the First Amendment, what free speech protects, uh, the courts have several different lines of attack. Um, one is self-governance, the notion that we need to be able to talk about issues in order to operate as a democratic society. Uh, if the voters who, you know, remember, in an American system, the voters are sovereign, the people are sovereign. Uh, if they can't talk about issues that confront the government and the society, then they can't run the society as the people who are sovereign are intended to do. Um, it also has the beneficial effect that people are more likely to put up with losing in politics if they feel like they had their say. Uh, and for that matter, if they could grumble about it afterward, which people certainly do today. Um, there's also the notion of the search for truth, the marketplace of ideas, uh, the idea that by discussing things, we see different angles on them and we understand them more fully and differently than we would if we didn't have free and open discussion. This has to do things like Milton's Areopagitica and so on. Uh, which, by the way, is worth reading even today. Um, there's also the notion that free speech is necessary to develop moral virtue, that if you simply unquestioningly accept ideas uh, and don't reason your way to them, uh, you don't deserve any credit even when you're right. Uh, there's also the notion that we boost tolerance in society by having open discussion of ideas. If people are forced to confront, to hear, to at least be aware of people who have very different ideas and approaches to life than they do, uh, then they will develop tolerance for them. There's a, Lee Bollinger, who's now the president of Columbia, but used to be a law professor, uh, has a good book on this from 
many years ago that makes that very point quite well. Uh, and autonomy, expression. People want to express themselves. They want to let other people know what they think and what they feel, and free speech allows them to do that. Uh, all of these come into play in different degrees in different cases and in different settings. And you should always, as you read a case and read what the court does with it, think about what vision of free speech is the court applying here and why is it applying that one and not one of the others? It's worth looking at. Well, con let, let's go back to content neutral and content based for a minute, as your textbook does. Um, content based regulation, as I mentioned, is very disfavored. And the Playboy case, United States v. Playboy Entertainment Group, is a good example of this. Uh, in the old days, before cable went digital, they would scramble stuff. I remember this. When I was in law school, we used to go to Rudy's Bar in New Haven, and they had a TV with cable on it. And people would always turn it actually to the Playboy channel. And then if you fiddle with the horizontal and the vertical hold, you can kind of unscramble. People found that very titillating. Um, Congress wanted to force the Playboy channel and other channels that had sexually explicit semi uh, content to scramble it uh, or otherwise make it unavailable uh, to households with children. Um, the court says this is content-based regulation. You are regulating sexually explicit, it's not obscene, just sexually explicit content differently. Uh, and the statute thus has to pass strict scrutiny. And the court said it doesn't pass strict scrutiny. There are less uh, intrusive means of regulating it, such as, for example, simply not delivering that content to houses that don't want it or allowing people to block channels so that their kids can't watch it without a pen. Reed against Town of Gilbert is another content-based case, uh, which is kind of fun. It's a sign case. Cities are always regulating signs and they're always getting in trouble doing it. If you find yourself a city law director or something like that, you'll probably have to deal with a sign ordinance at least once a year that's probably unconstitutional, or so it seems. Gilbert banned signs unless a permit was obtained, but then they exempted a bunch of categories of signs. Um, but they regulated things pretty strictly. And uh, poor Mr. Reed with his church that had temporary signs to tell people where they were meeting this week because it floated from one storefront or other location to another, uh, kept getting cited for not taking his signs down within an hour of the event ending. Uh, he sued on the grounds that this was content-based, that they were treating temporary directional signs, that was the term for what he was doing, differently, and uh, he won. The court said this is a content-based regulation and it doesn't pass strict scrutiny. They disagreed with the city's argument that we are regulating speakers, not speech, because we don't care what's on the signs, except you do care what's on the signs, because you have rules that are different for different signs about different things. So the court said their purpose is not relevant when a law is content-based on its face, which they held this was. Content-based regulation is unusual, but not unknown. And one place where it has traditionally come up and that gives us a lot of our cases is incitement. Now, incitement is when you encourage someone to commit a crime. That is one of the unprotected categories that the court has set out. The unprotected categories of speech are obscenity, child porn, incitement, and fighting words. Although I warn you, you hear a lot of talk in public discussion about fighting words as an exception to free speech, but that comes from the 1942 case of Chaplinsky against New Hampshire and the 
Supreme Court has never actually upheld another regulation of speech on the grounds of fighting words. So it's not actually a very relevant case. When people start talking about Chaplinsky, I'm not saying they're idiots, but do remind them that that's a case that has not had a whole lot of weight. Um, incitement is where we get a lot of our cases, from the, especially from the early 20th century. And that is because incitement was used regularly to regulate speech that the government didn't like, frequently from communists, anarchists, uh, and other flavors of political undesirables. Um, this led over time to the development of a doctrine called clear and present danger. Uh, and a couple of things are worth noting in these cases. Uh, first of all, if you, if you look at what people are actually saying today, none of this would seem very controversial uh, or subject to regulation. And second, much of this doctrine was actually developed by uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes and Louis Brandeis in dissents. Uh, and frequently you hear these cases quoted, but they're actually quoting the Holmes or Brandeis dissent. And when you actually read the case, you see that the person involved went to jail. Uh, Schenck is one of these cases. Uh, Schenck is a case where he's a pretty standard model socialist, and he's opposing the draft in World War I, making the argument, which I personally believe to be correct, uh, that the draft violates the 13th Amendment. The Supreme Court had said otherwise just a few years earlier in the selective service cases, but it's a perfectly respectable constitutional argument. Um, and his piece, at least in form, the court says, confined itself to peaceful measures, such as a petition for the repeal of the Selective Service Act. So, shake loses is the bad news. Uh, I, I hope you can hear me well enough to know that. Um, Schenck loses because the court says he wouldn't have sent these documents unless it had been intended to have some effect. And we don't see what effect it could be expected to have upon persons subject to the draft, except to influence them to obstruct carrying it out. That is, if you tell people you're being drafted and the draft is unconstitutional, uh, then that's bad. And uh, that would only be done if you have some sort of intent to obstruct the draft. And uh, that's good enough. The most stringent protection, this is a very famous line, the most stringent protection of free speech would not protect a man in falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic. That's a famous Holmes line, and you hear it all the time, although people often just say you can't shout fire in a crowded theater. It's very important to remember the falsely part of that statement. It's fine to shout fire in a crowded theater if there is a fire, though maybe not the most constructive approach. Uh, Schenck is very, as I say, it's, it's a very unfriendly case to free speech. Uh, the court takes the position that if you say something that might have a bad consequence, the government can shut you up. Uh, even if, as in this case, I think it's a very reasonable argument to make. Uh, similar cases afterward, uh, in Frowork against the United States, they upheld a conviction under the Espionage Act on very similar grounds um, from publishing articles in a German language newspaper. That didn't help. Um, talking about how the draft was illegal. Circulation of the paper was tiny, but the court said it might produce disaffection among German Americans, and that's bad. Uh, Debs involved the conviction and actually jailing of a prominent uh, socialist. He was a candidate for president. He got two or three million votes running for the Socialist Party um, for giving a speech that, again, uh, seems today like something you could hear all over the place, uh, talking about how socialism was great, and then saying, well, I, I can't say everything I'd like to say here, and apparently that was considered enough to ju justify the inference that he would have said things that were illegal and that was going to place thoughts in his listeners' minds 
that were the same as if he'd said things were illegal, and therefore Debs could go to jail, which indeed he did. Um, really quite different from today. Uh, Abrams against the United States. Most Americans don't remember that uh, toward the end of World War I, the United States and other Western countries invaded Russia. Uh, believe me, the Russians do remember. Uh, in a way, it's too bad it didn't work. They were trying, they wanted to put down the communist revolution there, and had they succeeded, it would have saved the world and Russia a world of pain and hurt, uh, but it was a failure. Um, Abrams and various other people who sympathized with the Russian Revolution uh, tried to encourage workers in the United States to oppose it, and the result was that they went to jail. Um, the Supreme Court says, even if their primary purpose and intent was to aid the cause of the Russian Revolution, uh, they're nonetheless going to injure the war effort with Germany. The plan of action they adopted necessarily involved that, and therefore, the purpose of their propaganda was to excite at the supreme crisis of the war, disaffection, sedition, riots, and as they hoped, a revolution in this country for the purpose of embarrassing and possibly humiliating the, and defeating the military plans of the government in Europe. Um, again, nowadays we see all kinds of anti-war activism as just mundane, but at the time it was quite controversial. Holmes and Brandeis dissent and say that uh, you shouldn't be able to punish speech unless it's proven to intend the actual consequence you're punishing it for, um, and that it should probably be likely to. Uh, Congress certainly cannot forbid all efforts to change the mind of the country. And in fact, this passage is the famous passage uh, from this dissent. Persecution for the expression of opinion seems to be perfectly logical. If you have no doubt of your premises or your power and want a certain result with all your heart, you naturally express your wishes in law and sweep away all opposition. But when men have realized that time has upset many fighting faiths, they may come to believe that the ultimate good desired is better reached by free trade and ideas, that the best test of truth is the power of the thought to get itself accepted in the competition of the market, and that truth is the only ground upon which their wishes safely can be carried out. That, at any rate, is the theory of our Constitution. And when you hear people talk about the marketplace of ideas, uh, that's where this theory came from. Uh, Holmes's idea that... Uh, Ideas should have to compete with other ideas in, in a marketplace of sorts, uh, and that truth would thereby be arrived at. And his notion that, sure, it makes sense to try to suppress people who disagree with you if you're sure you're right, but you can be wrong. Indeed, you could. Well, Holmes and Brandeis are dissenting there, and the court is not moving in that direction, really, uh, as we see in Gitlow against New York. Now, I will say in the defense of people 100 years ago, they weren't crazy to be afraid of communist revolutions because they were happening. Uh, it was quite a shock to the world when the communists uh, overthrew the czar in the uh, old Russian empire. Uh, I mean, they, they killed the czar and his ministers. Anastasia screamed in vain, uh, as the song says. Uh, and everybody was quite shocked by that. And that, that this country, which was seen as huge and powerful with an extremely established monarch, uh, could be turned upside down overnight. Uh, naturally made people afraid. And there were, in fact, communists in all kinds of countries around the world, or mostly not exclusively in the West, uh, who very much desired to bring about a similar result themselves. So these red scares were not the result of, of uh, fantasy, uh, exactly, uh, but they were quite extensive and swept an awful lot of people in who were no real danger. Uh, and Getlow is a good example of that. 
Get Low published the left-wing manifesto and the revolutionary age uh, containing writing advocating, advising, and teaching the doctrine that organized government should be overthrown by force, violence, and unlawful means. Well, it's pretty straightforward about what he believes. Uh, and clearly to try to do that would be illegal. Uh, however, as the court itself says, there was no evidence of any effect resulting from the publication and circulation of the manifesto, which is also fairly typical. Um, your text has some extracts from it, which sound like fairly typical leftist revolutionary boilerplate, which remains remarkably the same 100 years later. Um, but the court's quite unsympathetic. They say the jury was warranted in finding that the manifesto advocated not merely the abstract doctrine of overthrowing organized government by force, violence, and unlawful means, but action to that effect. Um, a single revolutionary spark may kindle a fire that smoldering for a time may burst into a sweeping and destructive conflagration. Whenever courts start talking about sparks and fires, that's always a sign that, that somebody's going to go to jail. Uh, they're definitely worried and upset. Uh, once again, we get a Holmes dissent. Holmes says this is a clear and present danger test, and there's no clear and present danger here. Uh, there was no danger of an attempt to overthrow the government by force on the part of the admittedly small minority who shared the defendant's views. And Holmes says every idea is in some sense an incitement. If you believe it, you're going to act accordingly. Uh, but we don't throw people in jail simply for having ideas. He said if the publication of this document had been an attempt to induce an uprising against the government at once and not at some indefinite time in the future, uh, it would have presented a different question. But there's insufficient definiteness in terms of the time. Um, well, we had a lot of cases after this where the court remains quite unsympathetic to the usually communist uh, or anarchist, a lot of overlap there, uh, groups. Whitney against California, uh, Brandeis added to his theory that there should be a probability of serious injury resulting from the speech of Ms. Whitney, who posted no such danger, nonetheless uh, was convicted. Um, Brandeis argued for a test that the danger from the speech must be clear, imminent, and substantial or serious, um, but the court did not adopt it. And indeed, in Dijon against Argonne, the court said that just being a member of a group that had as a purpose um, criminal syndicalism was enough to make you liable. We see similar stuff in cases involving the communists uh, after World War II. And again, there were actually lots of communists after World War II, and many of them were in the government, and many of them were directly connected with the Soviet Union. Uh, back in the 90s, some uh, previously unknown material from a project called Venona intercepting communications from Soviet spies back to the Soviet Union uh, showed that they really were quite a few people like that working under directions from Moscow. They, again, they were not a figment of somebody's imagination. Uh, nonetheless, uh, in Dennis, we had actual leaders of the American Communist Party. They weren't spies exactly. They were out in the open. Um, they were convicted for violating the Smith Act. The Smith Act said that if you engage in knowing advocacy or attempted advocacy of the duty, necessity, desirability, or propriety of overthrowing any government, American government by force, uh, then you were in violation. And the court held that they could be convicted. Um, in essence, the court adopted what's almost like a, a learned hand test where they said, the more serious the evil the government is trying to prevent, the less likelihood there needs to be to justify preventing the danger. Um, Black and Douglas dissented and said, this seems to be a departure from the clear and present danger rule. Uh, and Douglas said, there's no evidence they did anything but advocate ideas. 
and that should be okay. The court later in the 50s started to pivot and reverse on a lot of this. Uh, some of this was because of the implosion of Senator Joseph McCarthy, who, um, though, as I say, there were communists. There, a lot of the people he thought were communists weren't, and he went kind of crazy and uh, discredited the anti-communist cause to no small degree. Uh, and also, though the U.S. was quite nervous shortly after World War II, as many countries in Eastern Europe uh, were taken over by communists, and then as the Soviets developed an atomic bomb much sooner than anybody thought they would, by the late 50s, people felt a little safer, and the court began trimming that back. In Yates against the United States, um, they held you had to have proof that they advocated action for the overthrow of the government. And in Scales, they said if you wanted to punish somebody for belonging to an organization that advocated illegal conduct, you had to show that that particular defendant specifically intended to accomplish those illegal ends. Um, so that was a substantial trimming back. Uh, and then we get to Brandenburg against Ohio. Brandenburg brings us really to our modern law of incitement. Um, this was a sort of sad crowd of Ohio Ku Klux Klan members, and they had a rally. They invited reporters from a TV station to come and film it, which they did. Um, much of what they said was unintelligible, but some of it is in footnote one in your text. Uh, and I don't think they ever actually did march on Congress, and they certainly weren't 400,000 strong or whatever as promised. Uh, at any rate, they were charged with criminal syndicalism uh, in a prosecution that was uh, sort of a uh, recapitulation of Whitney, you might say. Uh, but the court said, we're not going to apply Whitney here. We're not, that's not the test now. And um, Ms. Honeycutt, can you tell us what the test is? Am I unmuted now? You're unmuted. So the element that they've added now is that you have to show that they were directly trying to incite or produce eminent lawless action or that it's uh, likely to incite or produce such action. It has to be likely to succeed as well. Likely to succeed. So they have to be, their incitement, the action, speech has to be directed to inciting eminent lawless action. It has to be likely to succeed. So that's a, that's a much stricter test. Um, do you think, yes. Is there any actual difference between that and Gitlow, or is it just that it's so many years later that they've decided to basically change their direction? Uh, I think there's a real difference uh, with Gitlow. In Gitlow, they uh, quite affirmatively stated that it didn't have any effect, and uh, nobody really seemed to think that it was very likely to have any effect. Uh, they're basically abandoning the spark at kindling the flame theory uh, if you applied Gitlow to this case, what the court would have said, I think, is that, yeah, these guys in Ohio are a bunch of losers, but what they're advocating for is serious, violent action, and there's always the chance that somebody might listen to them. A spark can kindle a flame, and therefore he can be punished. In fact, they're doing exactly the opposite. They're saying he has to be directing to speak imminent, immediate lawless action, and that it has to be likely to succeed, and, and none of that's the case here. They're talking about stuff that's in the future, uh, they're not likely to succeed at any of it because nobody's likely to listen to them. Uh, it, it's very different. It's the difference between me standing in front of a mob and saying, let's go burn down City Hall, and me sitting in my bedroom uh, typing on an internet site that people should go burn City Hall. Uh, one of them is an incitement, and the other is, well, Twitter as usual, probably. Thank you.
So Brandenburg is the modern test. If you're highlighting things in your book for the exam and stuff like that, you should definitely highlight the test that said Brandenburg on page 849, because that is the test for incitement today. Uh, and it is uh, widely, but it's also actually not uncommon for that to be tested on the bar exam for those of you who care about such things. Um, Douglas concurs and says, when you read the opinions closely and see how the clear and present danger test has been applied, it was never much of a clear and present danger. The threats were often loud, but always puny and made serious only by judges so wedded to the status quo that critical analysis made them nervous. And then, of course, Black concurs. The Black's position was that all restrictions on speech were unconstitutional under the First Amendment. So he doesn't even think there should be a clear and present danger. Well, after Brandenburg, uh, courts have been much more willing to overturn convictions for incitement or disorderly conduct or other things like that. Uh, as you see, for example, in Hess v. Indiana, police are clearing the streets from anti-war discrimination. Some guy yells, uh, we'll, take the we'll take the street later. Uh, I'm leaving out the F word. Or again, and um, the court says that's just not enough. And NAACP against Clayward Hardware, it's a little closer case. Uh, there was a boycott of businesses uh, in Mississippi, and the NAACP had encouraged the boycott, and threats were made that people would have their necks broken if they didn't participate in the boycott and patronize those businesses. Um, but the court said that it wasn't a sufficiently direct or imminent threat or invocation of lawless action, so uh, it did not support a conviction, or in this case, actually a judgment uh, awarding damages. Now, we do have Holder Against Humanitarian Law Project, which is a case involving aid to terrorist organizations, uh, where the court did uphold uh, the statute. Um, but it's directs to specific training, expert advice, assistance, or service, uh, almost enough to make one it would seem a participant in any crimes that were involved. Uh, the court anyway, defers to Congress here to a greater degree than it normally defers to state legislatures uh, and such. Uh, that may be put down to war on terror sentiment, though uh, honestly the court never got very swept away with that. There's a subspecies of incitement called true threats. And these come up particularly in the internet context a lot. Uh, a true threat is punishable. Vague statements of potential violence are not. Uh, a true threat means you threaten to commit criminal harm to somebody, and it has to be sufficiently immediate and credible that a, a reasonable person would be afraid of it. In Virginia against Black, we see how that plays out. Virginia against Black is a cross-burning case. Um, lots of southern states have laws against burning crosses which date back to the Klan era. Um, in this case, we have two sets of cross-burnings. Uh, one on private property uh, by a guy named Barry Black. The Ku Klux Klan guy named Black. Oh, well. Um, not the first one of those, actually. Uh, he had a Klan cross burning on his property. Um, he was charged and convicted under the Virginia statute of burning a cross with the intent of intimidating. And the Virginia statute said that 
a jury can infer an intent to intimidate simply from the fact that you burned a cross. The burning of a cross by itself, the jury instruction said, is sufficient evidence from which you may infer the required intent. The other defendants actually a somewhat more violent act, burned a cross in the yard of James Jubilee, an African-American who was Elliot's next door neighbor, not very neighborly there. Uh, though it's unclear whether they did it out of racial animus or because they were mad at him for complaining about them making too much noise shooting on their property. Um, the court says, well, cross burning, cross burning is inextricably intertwined with the history of the Ku Klux Klan. Often the Klan used cross burnings as a tool of intimidation and a threat of impending violence. Uh, this is true. Uh, after the Brown case, in the era of massive resistance, there was a resurgence of the Klan, as some people feared. There were cross burnings and such again. Uh, and the symbolism of a burning cross, though not always one of intimidation, uh, can reasonably be seen as that much of the time. So the court says what we have to do is analyze this Virginia statute and see whether Virginia is regulating true threats or whether it's sweeping in things that are beyond the limit of the true threat doctrine. Uh, true threats, the court says, encompass those statements where the speaker means to communicate a serious expression of an intent to commit an act of unlawful violence to a particular individual or group of individuals. So notice the characteristics here. You have to mean to communicate this expression. It has to be an intent to commit an act of unlawful violence, and it has to be against a, a particular individual or an identifiable group. It protects people from the fear of violence. It's not about preventing violence as such. Intimidation in a constitutionally prescribable sense of the word is a type of true threat where a speaker directs a threat to a person or group of persons with the intent of placing the victim in fear of bodily harm or death. So was burning a cross this kind of a threat? Well, that's what the court looks at. In the case of Mr. Black, who burned a cross on his own property, um, it seems shaky. Uh, the court says that the prima facie evidence provision where Virginia presumes bad intent from the fact that you burned a cross renders the statute unconstitutional. The act of burning a cross may mean that the person is engaging in a constitutional prescribable act of intimidation but it may also simply be core political speech. Uh, the Klan has political views which are reprehensible, but they are political views nonetheless, and they're just as protected by the First Amendment as anybody else's. Uh, with the case of Black, they vacate his conviction. With the case of Elliot and Omar, they send it back to the Virginia Supreme Court for further proceedings in light of this opinion. Well, that's, that's a pretty good true threat case. Um, it, in the internet context, it's trickier because if somebody, I mean, I once got really nasty threats, which uh, we traced to an internet cafe in Amsterdam, at which point I no longer cared. Uh, if they'd come from the Starbucks at Cedar Bluff, maybe I would have. Um, it's hard to tell sometimes with internet statements whether they're seriously likely to intimidate people or not. Um, People tend to get carried away. And there's a lot of hyperbole on the internet. Uh, and hyperbole doesn't require the internet. The Watts case illustrates this. Uh, Mr. Watts was a uh, anti-war protester during the Vietnam War era who threatened President Johnson. 
uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson or LBJ. Uh, he said, I've got to go for my draft physical this Monday morning. If they ever make me carry a rifle, the first man I want to get in my sights is LBJ. Nobody's going to make me kill my black brothers. Uh, the court said this was the law under which he was charged was facially valid, but his remark was protected political hyperbole. Uh, that is to say, they just didn't think he really meant it. He was just spouting off. Um, in NAACP against Claiborne Hardware, the big thing was eminence. Um, Charles Evers had told people who didn't adhere to the boycott, if we catch any of you going in, any of them racist stores, we're going to break your damn neck. Uh, weeks later, somebody fired shots into the windows of people who violated the boycott. But the court said that the strong language couldn't really be incitement because there wasn't uh, enough eminence. These are sometimes hard questions to analyze because they frequently turn on the facts. Uh, you really just have to analyze them in light of the truth of its test and say, um, was this intended to communicate a threat to somebody? Uh, if so, were they placed in fear? Um, we have the, uh, my Ilonis against United States case, Tone Dougie, uh, that was his alleged rap name, who put a lot of threats on the internet to a lot of people, but claimed they were part of his persona as a rap artist. Uh, the court held that you could convict in a case like this if a reasonable person would consider the communication a threat. Uh, this is somewhat problematic, but that's, that's the law. And it would also be hard to address, I think, any other way, really. Well, that gets us out of incitement. And uh, somebody did have a question about Gitlo. Did the court apply a reasonable test instead of the clear and present danger because it's state police powers instead of a federal? I don't think that really came into play at all. Uh, no, I, I, don't, I don't think there, there's no different test for state police powers versus federal law in that context. So I, I don't think that makes a difference. Uh, all right, obscenity. Now, I mentioned before, obscenity is to some degree technologically determined. Uh, the history of obscenity is that uh, only rich people could get it for a long time because only rich people could afford paintings. And there were actually what we would consider pornographic paintings. Uh, some of which are now considered great art. Uh, only rich people generally, or important people, were literate and could read. So if you had written word obscenity, for most people, there was no danger that it was going to corrupt their minds because they wouldn't know what it said. Uh, and of course, photography and motion pictures and such were far in the future. Uh, as a result, there wasn't a lot of interest in regulating this sort of thing, generally speaking. Uh, when they did start regulating it, the original tests uh, looked on its ability to uh, Deprave the weak-minded was a phrase that was sometimes used. And there's always sort of a class component, which is to say uh, stuff with explicit sexual content that appeals to uh, Tony highbrow people is art, and stuff with explicit sexual content that appeals to the masses is pornography. And that is a view that we still see to some degree today. Uh, sexually related material is protected by the First Amendment unless it is obscene. And the question is, how do we know when it's obscene? And the answer is, good freaking question. Uh, the courts had a lot of trouble with it, and uh, the most honest answer was probably Justice Powell's, I know it when I see it, uh, which um, isn't very helpful to most of us. Uh, the growth of obscenity uh, really is a technological phenomenon. Uh, photography, of course, was invented around 1840, and um, 
within about 15 minutes of photography being invented, it was a very early than that, if you believe what Fox Talbot said, uh, but uh, photography had been functional for about 15 minutes when people started making sexually explicit, basically pornographic photos. Uh, I've seen some of those from the 1840s and 1850s, and you know, they look surprisingly like uh, the ones they have today. It's amazing how quickly the conventions of that art form were established. Um, during the Civil War, it became possible to mass produce uh, naked photos, and they were shared among the troops who were uh, lonely. And uh, there was a big backlash after the war uh, under uh, a fellow named Anthony Comstock, who got himself appointed postal commissioner and said about suppressing obscenity, uh, by which he also meant information on birth control and sex in general, as well as titillating material. Um, still, not much action in courts. The First Amendment, of course, wasn't being applied to the states, and the court wasn't very interested in dealing with uh, Mr. Comstock's problems uh, or issues. So uh, we really didn't start to see a lot of action until the sexual revolution was sort of beginning to take off, actually. Uh, and that's when the Supreme Court started really struggling uh, with whether it could carve obscenity out of the First Amendment or somehow deal with it because it was just took for granted that it was okay to regulate obscenity. And, and there's, it's not clear why that is. Uh, we sometimes hear the, the short fiction that obscenity isn't speech, uh, but of course, that's not true. Uh, what they usually mean by that is that obscenity is such low value speech that it doesn't really matter if we regulate it. And uh, that's a little shakier, um, as we'll see. And the court also found it extremely difficult to come up with tests that would allow the states or the federal government to regulate material that it regarded as crude without also allowing them to regulate material that it regarded as art. Uh, and that happens throughout. Uh, Roth against the United States and Alberts against California um, are where the court tries to develop the standard of content having to do with sex. You can't be obscene if you don't deal with sex. Um, it has to appeal to a prurient interest via a community standard. Uh, prurient comes from the same Latin root as itching. It means gives you the itch, get you excited, aroused. Um, and it has to be in Roth against the United States utterly without redeeming social value. And I just love the utterly part. Uh, you'll be shocked to know that what happened then was a lot of pornographic producers used to just put a few pages of Aristotle or something in the back of the book and uh, claim that, well, we're not utterly without redeeming social value. Uh, much amusement was to be had. Well, Brennan writes the opinion. Brennan, I think, never had his heart in regulating obscenity at all. Uh, and says, free speech is here to protect expression, to assure unfettered interchange of ideas. All ideas have even the slightest redeeming social importance, unorthodox ideas, controversial ideas, even ideas hateful to the prevailing climate of opinion have full constitutional protection. But implicit in the history of the First Amendment is the rejection of obscenity as utterly without redeeming social importance. So if you're obscene, you're utterly without redeeming social importance, which I guess means if you have any redeeming social importance, you can't be obscene. Um, they reject the old British test of whether it tends to deprave and corrupt those whose minds are open to such immoral influences. That's from Regina against Hicklin. Uh, and instead says that the test is whether to the average person applying contemporary community standards, the dominant theme of the material taken as a whole appeals to prurient interest. Um, so there you have it. 
If you're a publisher or a regulator, it's super clear, right? Maybe. Uh, Harlan worries and says, you know, many juries might find that James Joyce's Ulysses or Vacacio's Decameron, Decameron, very apt for our current times, uh, was obscene, and yet the conviction of a defendant for selling either book would raise, for me, the gravest constitutional problems. Uh, and he also suggests that this really should be left to the states, that uh, Congress has no great national role in regulating obscenity, and that this is something that could vary from state to state uh, with no great harm being done. Douglas, on the other hand, just says we're really trying to create purity of thought, and that's a bad idea. After Roth, well, Roth was hard. As I mentioned, uh, publishers started finding a variety of amusing ways to try to add redeeming social value. And courts had no real idea what all this stuff meant, uh, as I think perhaps the court didn't either. Um, so they restate Roth to try to clarify things in 66 in Memoirs Against Massachusetts, um, where the plurality says, the dominant theme of the material taken as a whole appeals to a prurient interest in sex. The material is patently offensive because it affronts contemporary community standards relating to the description or representation of sexual matters. And the material is utterly without redeeming social values. So we still got the utterly in there. Uh, and that turns out to be, as Chief Justice Berger notes later in the Miller case, a burden virtually impossible to discharge. Uh, and it was loads of fun for the court uh, in this, that it became so case by case that they literally wound up uh, watching allegedly obscene movies uh, in the Supreme Court building with the justices watching them to decide if they were obscene or not, and then issuing per curiam uh, opinions, which uh, some justices perhaps enjoyed, uh, and some justices refused to participate in because they said they thought it was too case by case and inappropriate. There's some fun stuff in the book about the Supreme Court, The Brethren, that talks about this. Um, it was Potter Stewart. He said, I know it when I see it. I think I said Lewis Powell before. Um, that was unsatisfactory. Um, so we get Miller against California now. And in Miller against California, we get a new test, which remains, to the extent there is such a thing as obscenity in practical matter today, remains the real test. No, it's just a bunch of cases they brought back, and they now say this test is works which depict or describe sexual conduct. The conduct must be specifically defined by the applicable state law as written or authoritatively construed. The basic guidelines must be whether the average person applying contemporary community standards would find that the work taken as a whole appeals to the prurient interest, whether the work describes depicts or describes in a patently offensive way sexual conduct specifically defined by the applicable state law, and whether the work taken as a whole lacks serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. And they specifically get rid of the utterly without redeeming social value test. And one of the interesting things about the obscenity cases is there's much more deference to local standards in these cases than there is really anywhere else in constitutional law. Uh, the court says, under a national constitution, fundamental First Amendment limitations on the powers of the states do not vary from community to community, but this does not mean that there are or should be or can be fixed uniform national standards of precisely what appeals to the prurient interest. And they say it is neither realistic nor constitutionally sound to read the First Amendment as requiring the people of Maine or Mississippi 
except public depiction of conduct found tolerable in Las Vegas or New York City. Now, imagine applying this to, I don't know, abortion or birth control or gay marriage or many other things that the Supreme Court has regulated. Uh, but somehow, uh, in the obscenity cases, there's much more deference to local standards coming from the court. And there's never a very clear explanation of why that is. It's just asserted that it's obvious. Uh, the other thing to notice, though, is that the redeeming social, artistic, literary value, et cetera, part, is not a community standard. That is done according to a national standard. Uh, Douglas dissents. He says there are no constitutional guidelines here. Nobody knows what this means. To send men to jail for violating standards they cannot understand, construe, and apply is a monstrous thing to do in a nation dedicated to fair trials and due process. Well, there you have it. Uh, and Paris Adult Theater one against Slayton. Very similar take. Uh, the difference here is this was an adult theater. Nobody was going to see anything unless they wanted to. It had warnings that they were showing naked movies inside and that no one under 21 or who was offended by nudity should go. Uh, nonetheless, the court says that's not enough. Obscenity can be regulated even when it's between consenting adults. We categorically disapprove the theory that obscene pornographic films acquire constitutional immunity from state regulation simply because they are exhibited for consenting adults only. Why? Well, they quote Alexander Bickle, a Yale law professor, and say, it concerns the tone of the society, the style and quality of life now and in the future. A man may be entitled to read an obscene book in his room or expose himself indecently there. We should protect his privacy. But if he demands a right to obtain the books and pictures he wants in the market and to foregather in public places, discreet, if you will, but accessible to all, with others who share his taste, then to grant him his right is to affect the world about the rest of us and to impinge on other privacies. Now again, compare that to the treatment of other issues that the court addresses, uh, such as birth control or abortion or whatever, uh, which also presumably affect the tone of society. It's not clear why explicit sexual content is different in the way it affects the tone of society to the point where it's constitutionally privileged to regulate it when other things that affect the tone of society uh, cannot be regulated. Uh, the court doesn't make any effort to reconcile these. Brennan dissents and says, um, you know, we just really need to admit that we've been unable to separate obscenity from other sexually oriented but constitutionally protected speech. Uh, we assume that obscenity does exist and that we know it when we see it. We just can't describe it in a way that anyone can use, you know, what's going to be obscene in advance. Uh, one of the things that's happened here I think part of it's a breakdown in consensus. I think it was probably true that uh, in 1940, most everybody did know what they considered obscene and that society diverged somewhat then, what with the sexual revolution and all of that. Uh, it's also interesting to see how things have changed. Um, if you walk through your supermarket checkout, uh, assuming that you're not having all your food delivered now because you're isolating, um, when you look at the magazines on the stand, look at a copy of, say, Cosmo or Red Book, uh, pretty much anything, any of those magazines would have been considered obscene in 1950 uh, at the time of Roth, say. Uh, there are articles on sex, there are articles on uh, all kinds of things. Uh, what was it? Teen Vogue had the how-to guide on anal sex. I promise you that would have been considered obscene uh, quite a good deal more recently than 1957. Uh, now, 
that's just all changed. And some of that is technology. Uh, pornography just become vastly more accessible, uh, which made it both harder to regulate and just sufficiently pervasive that it seems normal to people now. Uh, and also, I think that we've sort of shown that maybe a lot of the harms that people asserted weren't so real, at least people used to think and used to argue, and indeed the um, President's Commission on Obscenity uh, under President Nixon made this argument that exposure to pornography made men more likely to be rapists and so on. Uh, but in fact, I wrote a column on this about 10 years ago called the pornography, what was it called? Porn and Violence, Good for America's Children. And uh, basically, I found some stuff people had said in the 90s that we were having this big national uncontrolled experiment with violent video games and internet porn. And we're gonna, it was gonna turn all our teenagers into rapists and murderers. And in fact, all the rates went down for rape and murder uh, from the 1990s. So I think we've disproven the connection, at least that was asserted there. But I think also people have just gotten used to it. And um, the demographics have changed. Of course, uh, pornography used to be primarily aimed at males, almost exclusively. Now, uh, men are probably still the biggest consumers of pornography, but uh, women have come a long way, baby, to catch up. And uh, if you look at the Pornhub statistics they release on what men and women watch and such, uh, it's fascinating and revealing. Uh, and in reality now, we just don't regulate obscenity much. It's news if somebody even tries to prosecute a case for obscenity. Um, there were a couple of efforts in the Obama administration. And some, they went after somebody for making what are called crush videos, uh, which is where women in high heels step on bugs or in the real hardcore stuff, mice. Uh, and this is apparently very titillating to a small but lucrative market. Uh, but uh, it's a relatively uh, unused area of law now. And um, it, it's just a cultural change. Uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, believe me, is far more uh, obscene than James Joyce's Ulysses, and yet was banned nowhere. Well, what can we regulate for obscenity? Basically, what's left is child pornography, and that is still vigorously regulated, and that is upheld by the court, uh, as we see in New York against Ferber. This is a New York, and I should tell you, about it, this was a cultural change. Um, it was really before my time, but in the 60s and such, uh, pornography involved, including children, was not unknown. And even in popular culture in the 70s, and Brooke Shields uh, famously did a bunch of nude photos for some uh, glossy magazine when she was like 10. Uh, and, uh, you know, that was considered a little racy, but not huge. Now, now it would be a huge outcry. Uh, New York against Ferber is a statute that prohibits people from knowingly promoting sexual performances by children under the age of 16, not even 18, um, by distributing materials that depict that. And here, the court upholds the regulation even of non-obscene sexually oriented material involving children in New York against Ferber. And what's the difference? Well, the difference really is harm to children. If you make a child porn video, you necessarily involve children in sexual acts. And that is, that implicates the state's interest in safeguarding the physical and psychological well-being of minors. And so in, in Ferber, the court says this protection of children rationale, and note they're not protecting children from seeing porn, they're protecting children from being used in porn. Um, on the grounds that it's intrinsically harmful for them to be engaging in sexual conduct uh, on camera and so on.
Um, it is irrelevant to the child who has been abused whether or not the material has a literary, artistic, political, or social value, says the court. Uh, in addition, there's an economic argument, uh, sort of like you may recall from Gonzalez against Raich, the uh, marijuana case, that they have to crush the market for this entirely to cut down on the exploitation of children. Um, this, the court says, is a rare content-based regulation of speech that can be upheld under strict scrutiny. The evil to be restricted so overwhelmingly outweighs the expressive interest, if any, at stake that no process of case-by-case -case adjudication is required. But the nature of the harm to be combated requires that the state offense be limited to works that visually depict sexual conduct by children below a specified age. So you can write all the kiddie porn books you want, and they're not prosecutable as obscene here. And indeed, I think, although traditionally the written word was capable of obscenity, I think to modernize, uh, it's hard to imagine anything in written form qualifying as obscene. Um, and the court here specifically limits the child porn exception to visual depictions. And the reason for this is the goal is the prevention of harm to real children. They're not concerned about depraving the minds of the consumers or lowering the tone of our society. They're concerned with the actual harm to the actual children used in these actual cases. As we'll see uh, in next class's assignment, uh, when there are no actual children involved, the court actually comes down differently. Uh, Brennan concurs but says, in my view, application of the New York law or any similar statute to depictions of children that in themselves do have serious literary, artistic, scientific, or medical value would violate the First Amendment. The harm to the child argument lacks much of its force where the depiction is a serious contribution to art or science. That's kind of an interesting statement. Um, I'm not sure I agree with that. Uh, but it is, it's an interesting statement coming from Justice Brennan, too. Um, the final frontier in regulation of pornography that is not obscene comes from the feminist efforts to regulate uh, pornography. Uh, this is championed by Catherine McKinnon, a law professor, uh, and the late Andrea Dworkin, a uh, well-known feminist activist. Um, and their goal in regulating feminism, really pornography from a feminist perspective, was very much to make people think of women differently. Uh, and that was the purpose of their uh, Indianapolis City Ordinance. They, they had this interesting alliance with, uh, I believe it was a conservative women's group, I think it was Phyllis Schlafly Eagle Forum that uh, they joined together to back this. There's uh, something of a feminist and, uh, and right-wing uh, alliance on these pornography issues sometimes. Uh, and that happened here. Uh, this ordinance was challenged, struck down in district court, and then struck down by the Seventh Circuit, an opinion by Judge Frank Easterbrook. That's American Booksellers Association against Hudnut. And Easterbrook says, you're regulating non-obscene speech. You define pornography as a practice that discriminates against women, and you regulate it regardless of whether it passes the Miller test for obscenity. Instead, you ban it if it sends the wrong signal. Pornography to the ordinance is the graphic, sexually explicit subordination of women, whether in pictures or in words, that also includes one or more of the following. I'm not going to read all this. Uh, it's in your book. Uh, at any rate, the Indianapolis ordinance does not defer to the Miller taste, the prurient interest, offensiveness, 
or to the standards of the community. It demands attention to particular depictions, not to the work judged as a whole. It is irrelevant under the ordinance whether the act has literary, artistic, political, or science value. And the city says that's a virtue. They say pornography influence attitudes, and the statute is a way to alter people's attitudes, to alter the socialization of men and women, rather than to vindicate community standards of offensiveness. And Easterbrook says, yeah, that's why you lose, because you're trying to regulate pornography based on the way it makes people think. And when you regulate speech because you don't like the way it makes people think, you are engaged in censorship. You're violating the First Amendment. Speech is there to make people think a particular way, to try to persuade people to think a particular way. And that's why we have a First Amendment. He says, the state may not ordain preferred viewpoints in this way. The Constitution forbids the state to declare one perspective right and silence opponents. And he goes, talks about all the harm they say that pornography does in terms of attitudes and behaviors and says, this simply demonstrates the power of pornography as speech. All of these unhappy effects depend on mental intermediation. Pornography affects how people see the world, their fellows, and social relations. If pornography is what pornography does, so is other speech. And he gives a bunch of examples of speech that changes how people think, sometimes through an emotional reaction. He says, any other answer leaves the government in control of all of the institutions of culture, the great censor and director of what thoughts are good for us. So that's the Supreme Court summarily affirmed this case. There's no Supreme Court opinion on it, but uh, I think it's fair to say that they agreed. And that's where we stand on these efforts to regulate non-obscene speech. So we're in sort of a funny place with obscenity. Uh, it still exists as a concept, uh, but as a practical matter in our society today, uh, we are surrounded by material that would have been thought of as uh, extremely obscene. Uh, not that long ago, uh, and much of it, I well, I don't know, much of it could be prosecuted under the Miller standard, maybe, although perhaps it's just that community standards have shifted to the point where nothing counts as that offensive to most people. Uh, there's been really, just in the last few months, interestingly, a little bit of a campaign among some so social conservatives to try to get the current administration to go after pornography uh, which I has found no traction. Uh, but uh, there's just really not much interest in that, and most people seem um, at least accepting of where we are today. And there certainly are no great political careers to be made by trying to prosecute obscenity, uh, which means that it's not likely to happen. Um, the one exception that people do seem to have sort of coalesced around uh, is child pornography, where there is uh, a very strong social stigma attached to it and a powerful desire to regulate it, uh, which the court has allowed to be done. Uh, but other than that, obscenity as a concept, uh, honestly, is found more in constitutional law casebooks than it's found in the actual legal world. Uh, for the bar exam, it would be useful to know the Miller test and to be able to apply it uh, and to understand the child pornography exception for the New York uh, against fervor. That's something they sometimes do test and that you may want to pay some attention to. Um, but, and of course, that might even be true for my exam. It's, it, that stuff's easy to test. And you know what I've told you, stuff that's easy to test winds up being tested more than things that are not easy to test. A rule you should apply in all your classes everywhere. Well, we finished actually just a little bit earlier. Some of this online stuff seems to go a little faster. 
Um, it is an exceptionally beautiful day outside. And my advice to you is if you have time, try and enjoy a little bit of the fresh air and sunshine. It's good for you and good for your health. Uh, and you should be enjoying life as you can. As a great philosopher once said, enjoy every sandwich. Do it. I'll see you next class. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.